the Bronx episode three. It's your boy KB. It's your boy Jay, aka the Bronx Professor, aka Mr. Fashionista. All the AKAs, man. We're gonna I'm gonna catch up one of these days. I promise. Yo, we got a very special episode for you today. Um, but just before we even continue, if the audio quality sounds a little bit different, just so you know, we are not at the luxurious, beautiful Dreamyard Studios like we like to be at uh, because of this effing coronavirus. We are actually recording from our home studios, but we are making it work. But Jay, tell them why today's episode is so special, brother man. Today's episode is so special and super exciting because we are joined by someone who is from the Bronx, who is doing amazing work, who is on these streets advocating, who is on the front lines. He is continuing to change the game. Please, please join me in welcoming Mr. Luis Torres. Thank you. Thank you for having me come come speak to all of you from my throne. Um, they call me the Bronx principal. I've been a principal for 15 years. And, you know, I'm excited to be here. Um, you know, there's a lot of craziness going on around the world. And, and, and through this podcast, I'm able to escape the craziness of the world. And so we mentioned earlier on in the po- podcast in episode one that we will be highlighting different people who are doing amazing work in the Bronx. And uh, today we are joined by Torres. And Torres, can you just tell us a little bit about your upbringing, your story, um, growing up in the Bronx and how you ended up where you are today? Yeah, um, so I grew up in the Soundview section of the Bronx on Elder and Watson. Shout out to Soundview. Yeah, yeah you know how that is. Um, so I grew up um, the son of a, of a super, the superintendent of two buildings. And, you know, it was challenging because the standards were high for me. When you're the super son, you're expected to do things a little bit different. So um, growing up, you know, our whole community was drug infested, but we were family. So we took care of each other and we supported each other through throughout our childhood. But sadly, when I got to high school, my guidance counselor felt the need to tell me that um, I would not be successful in college, that I should join the military. So at the age of 18, I joined the military and that, w- that was a life changer for me. Gotcha. So tell us, uh, what, what branch of the military did you end up joining? Well, I served in the U.S. Navy, um, which is interesting because um, right now uh, during this this uh, this coronavirus stuff, um, they're tapping into a lot of the resources that I, I was part of. Um, you got the U.S. Comfort coming to New York, you got these fleet hospitals being built. Um, and, and it's just, you know, an interesting time we're in right now. Yeah, so that's actually really interesting. So some of the work that I do, I'm a, I'm a school counselor um, and I work with uh, seniors, helping them kind of figure out their post-secondary journeys. Um, would you recommend students, Black and Latino students growing up low, low income to go into the armed forces? I, I'm, the, I'm the type of person that I feel that, you know, our young, our young men and women should decide what they want in life. It shouldn't be that uh, a recruiter or a guidance counselor tells you that you're, you need to join the military. Well, uh, my, with my experience, what I learned and the reason why I got into education is because I want to empower our youth to make those decisions for themselves. If they want to join the military, they should join because they want to go into it, not because somebody's telling them to do it. I think that's real. A whole bunch of uh, recruiters used to, when I was in high school, used to be like around our school trying to get Black and Latino students just to join without even have given them enough information about what they were signing up for. 
So I do think I dig what you said about having the information before you make that decision. Absolutely. And Torres, so you, you mentioned this a little bit, right? Like you went through the you, you went through the armed forces. How how long were you in the military? Yeah, I served in the military ten years. I was um uh, uh navy um medic and I was in the reserves. But interestingly enough, I went in the reserves and I wound up spending some active duty time because of Desert Storm. So when I signed up, I thought I was just going to be a weekend warrior and I wound up, you know, getting called up to Desert Storm. And, it, 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 you know, I had some experiences, let's just say, you know, and, and the other thing with the military is that when you look at the military structure, if you go to college, you could become a lieutenant. If you just go straight in on your own, you have to start start from the bottom up. So a lot of our Latino and black brothers who go into the military wind up from the bottom. And then you see on the in the back, the lieutenants are mostly white. So, you know, that structure for me doesn't work, you know. So how did you get from the military into education? What was that transition like? What were the, the next steps? Yeah, so because my guidance counselor told me I would not be successful in college, I decided to make it my life's mission to get as many college degrees as possible. So I wound up with an associate's degree in science from Hostos Community College. I wound up with a bachelor's degree in um, psychology from City College. I wound up with a master's degree in education from Mercy College. I wound up with an advanced degree in uh, administration from Hunter College. And then I wound up completing the New York City Leadership Academy, all to prove that guidance counselor wrong. Yo, shout out to what you just said, man. I, I love I love the resilience. What would you say for uh, for some of our young people who might not have that same resilience? Because sometimes if a guidance counselor says that to, to a kid, it could be like crushing. Yeah, you know, I, I always tell people, you know, um, life is too short. You know, I wish that I would have known what I know now back when I was a young man so I could have started my journey a lot sooner. Um, what we got to do is we got to start educating our youth about the realities of the world and understand why... Um, during this epidemic right now, some communities are going to be affected harder than others. Why some people will have access to technology and not others. Why some people will have access to health care and not others. The earlier we teach our youth that, the faster they'll become uh, ready to advocate and, and do the right things in their lives. And, and one of the things that they can do is educate themselves, get their degrees. Because in this world, if you don't have a degree, nobody listens to you, right? So you got to get your degrees. You got to get active and you got to start advocating and educating yourself so that you can be part of this evolution that we're doing right now. Can you say that word again, bro? I don't think I don't think everybody heard it. Yeah, this is the evolution. Evolution. E D U L U. what is it? I don't even know how to spell right now. I'm so delirious. E D U L U T I O N Edulution. Ed I, like I love it. Yeah, this is this is brand new. This is something that's coming out because of what we're going through right now. We're taking education to the next level. We are being forced to do what we should have been doing ten years ago. Now we're being forced. And now, you know, our communities are having to understand why inequity is so important for us. And why it's important that we fight for equitable resources? Because right now you're gonna have some children who are gonna get their education and others who are gonna lag behind, not because we don't wanna do something, but just because they don't have access. So that's why I love what's happening because now we're pushing people 
to do stuff to make sure all children have access to education, all children have access to technology. And hopefully after this coronavirus stuff is over, the digital divide will be over. Absolutely. Um, you touched on a lot right there. Um, the word edulution, right? I think it's something that we need to we need to really hone in on, right? It's, it's important because prior to coronavirus becoming what it is, there was already a progressive movement in education. A lot of folks were trying to do education differently, introduce new pedagogical approaches, um, make education fun, and really start to rethink and reimagine the way in which we approach the classroom for our, for our young people. And so as somebody who's been in education for such a long time, how have, how have you seen this evolution come to fruition? And what does it mean to you? Sadly, in the world that we live, right, everything that is valuable has to go through pressure, right? So for a diamond to be formed, there's a lot of pressure that needs to be applied so that a rock can become a diamond, right? It's the same thing with education. Right now, there is a, a, a major, a major, major push for innovation and creativity that did not exist before. You got teachers taking technology now to a whole nother level. You have people taking technology to a whole nother level that should have been happening before, because, but the pressure wasn't there. Now the pressure is on. So people who didn't want to use technology, people who didn't have access to technology are being forced now to, to take it to the next level. Every time in our world and during our, throughout our history, it's taking things like this to take our world to another level. From wars to, to, to other tragedies, to other epidemics, you know, now people are thinking outside the box. Now people are being more creative and innovative, and, and now people are being supported for doing that. You know, before people would look down upon, people were blocked from doing this stuff. Now it's being encouraged. Look, I got, I got a friend of mine who gave me the idea of taking filters from the homes and making masks out of it because when you read the mask the label on the filters it says it could block um most, most viruses from penetrating yeah. you know you got people being creative and, and doing things outside the box that that wasn't happening until the pressure was applied that's real um on your on your ig you said something interesting i don't know if it was your quote or something you got but it, you said the coronavirus is the quality review of the world uh what did you mean by that I thought that was dope. Yeah, what what is done is like when a quality review comes into your school, right? It's an evaluation if you're meeting the needs of of your children and your community. The coronavirus right now is checking us to see if we're meeting the needs of our human race, to see if we're meeting the needs of our society. You know, right now we're realizing how healthcare, how crime, how everything has been inequitable. Right. Because we didn't some people didn't see it. Now they're seeing it. You know, when you have a child at, at, in somebody's home that doesn't have access to a computer, you know, some people don't understand that because they don't they don't see it. But now they're seeing it, you know, so we're starting to realize. And, and the reason why it's the quality review of the world is because right now we're checking ourselves to understand if we're if we're ready if we're ready for the world, because the world is changing around us. And are, the, are, are we going to wait for coronavirus 20 
to come to wipe us all out? Or are we going to start making the changes and bring the innovations and the creativity that we need, bring the equity back so that everybody is going to be protected? Mm. So when I say it's the quality review of the world, it's, it's a check on as human beings, are we, re- are we ready for the ever-changing world around us? Mm, I love it. Uh, huge, huge shout out. I just had to take some notes, right? Because that response to what the what the quote was um, was amazing, right? The coronavirus is checking us to see if we have what we need for the human race. That is huge, and I think it speaks volumes. And huge shout out to you for all that you're doing. And so along the same lines, let me ask you a question. What do you think is the role of educators in, the, in, in today's times and what we're experiencing in the fight for equity, in the fight um, for, for resources, et cetera? So, so to me, there's two educators in this world. There's the ones who want to do the book work and want to just educate children, and that's it. Go home, make their money, and go home. Then you have the educators that want to change the lives of our children and want to empower them, and want to educate them, build them up, protect them, advise them, support them, nurture them. Those are the real educators that we need right now. And as a school leader, if you're not out there trying to get the resources you need for your community, then you're failing as an as a educational leader. I honestly feel that we can no longer sit back in our, in our office and expect that the resources that we're getting um, automatically to the school are going to be what all we need to, to make our schools successful and run at a high level. We need to become um, uh, advocates. I tell people we have to be hustlers and beggars. We have to hustle for all the resources we need and not be afraid to beg for them because you're not begging for yourself. You're begging for your children. So if I have to go to an elected official and I have to beg for something, then I'm going to do it because it's not begging for myself. Now, if we sit back in our office and we think that the resources that are being provided to the school are going to be enough for us to truly educate our children, then we're failing our children. So you mentioned, uh, obviously you mentioned the whole, what building leaders need to do. So obviously you are a person who came from, from Soundview, from the Bronx. So you came from these communities. So what about some of, some of maybe some of these white folks or some of these folks who uh, maybe grew up more well off and didn't come from these communities and they're building leaders now? How do we get them to have skin in the game? Well, well, I'm excited because I see a lot of great leaders that don't come from the community, which is great, you know. And I, and, and sometimes if you come from the community, sometimes you have bias and, and, and you block some of the work from happening, which is interesting, right? Um, I, I strongly feel that um, the way the system is moving right now, the way um, it, it, it's progressing, uh, you have no other choice but to, to, to become an advocate and a leader and a hustle and a beggar for your community. Um, because that's going to be what's going to be required. Because if not, you're not going to be able to survive in the system that we're working in right now. Um, I always tell people, you know, um, you may have not grown up in the community, but you come with a different um, uh, different lens. You can come with the lens that whatever you got as a child, you want for other children to have. You know, because sometimes we think that you have to come from the neighborhood to be able to provide for your community. But if you know what you got was great, then why not give it to the children that you serve? Also bring those same expectations, try to get the same resources you had when you was growing up and now bring it to our community. And and I have, you know, a, a lot of respect for a lot of people like Angelo, Angelo Letta, 
and, and others who are out there who, who didn't grow up in the community, but bringing the resources into the schools that he got when he was a child. Can I, can I just touch on, on something really quickly, right? I think we, we know that what you're doing is essentially changing the game, right? And we hope that all school leaders are heading in this direction and really trying to bring the resources and equity to our, to our young people and to our, our communities. But along, along the lines, and even before coronavirus started, right, you were already changing the game. You were, you were doing everything in your power and you stood on the front lines and you don't ask, um, you, don't, you don't need people to come see that and, and, uh, and say like a public thank you for it, et cetera. You just hit the ground running every day. And so as you throughout your career had thought about our young people and putting our families first and our students first and our communities first, have you ever came across opposition and if so, how do you go about dealing with that? But what you have to understand, um, Jason, is that growing up, you know, there was a lot of things I didn't have access to. And I was blind to understand why it was like that. Now that I'm a lot older, I understand how these systems are created. And a lot of these systems are created to hold our children down, to hold us down from being successful, you know. Um, while we're talking on this podcast about doing this great work and, and all the great things we're doing, you got to understand there are meetings happening out there about how to feed the private prison systems, how to keep people unhealthy to keep the hospitals and the clinics um, running, how to keep crime up so that the, you know, the prisons, the police officers stay in jobs. When we, when we look at this, we have to understand that although we're moving in the right direction, there are a lot of forces out there. They won't, don't want our people to be successful. They want our people to fail because as long as they're failing, we're, we're putting money in their pockets. So we got to also understand that's, that's a force that is real. You know, I have a friend of mine who told me that his friends would sit around the swimming pool and talk about their investments in private prisons. Now, if you're investing in a private prison, it's not to your advantage for our people not to be going to prison. You understand? So we have to understand that that although we have all this positive and great stuff happening, there is a force out there that doesn't want this to change. If you think about look, look what the coronavirus has done. It's opened the eyes for a lot of people. Because now what's happening? A lot of people are losing money. Why? Because the things that were in place before no longer exist. Right? Um, and, and, and right now you have a lot of people who are upset because they're losing money and in investments. Why? Because they're expecting for certain things to happen, right? In order for the money, in order for them to keep their business running, they have to have certain a clientele coming, right? So if you close down crime across the city, let's say we eliminate crime, police officers would be fired. Prisons would be shut down. Judges will not be needed anymore. All these people, all these people will be out of jobs, right? If you go, if you make everybody healthy, right? There's no need for hospitals, doctors, for clinics. There's no need for pharmaceuticals. You understand? So there's a there's gonna be always a need for these things. So people will be um, keeping us unhealth healthy and keeping crime going. And, and sadly, um, that's the world that we're living in right now. And, and, and right now, the coronavirus. Is showing some of that because now people are losing money because they they the status quo has been been you know broken. So as I was doing my research, one of the things that I found most interesting 
was that you were able to take a failing school and turn it completely around. So for a lot of my educator folks listening, I think they would be really interested to know what it took to be able to do that, because that sounds like it was a really heavy lift, and what that could mean for the surrounding community. Yeah, so first off, we have to understand that the school is not going to fix the community, right? It has to be a, a, a joint effort. The community around the school has to have equal investment as what's happening in the school. If not, you become the cycle of failure. So the more I've involved the, the school community by hiring people who live in the community, by you know connecting the resources to match the needs of the community. So we have an African community. I have staff now that speaks the language. The more that I'm doing that work, the more success we're showing. But the other thing that we have to understand is that whenever a school is successful, what happens? What is the first thing that happens? So if I'm a school that's on the failing list, what happens when I show success? What's the first thing that happens? You don't know? I'll tell you. They take away funding. When you get off the failing list, so you show success, and then they take funding away from the state. They say you no, no longer need that money. So everything that, you, that helped you get off that failing list, okay, they take it away, and then you go back to being a failing school. So one thing that I did about six years ago when that happened to me is I said, I'm not going to be dependent on the school budget anymore, the state funding anymore. I'm going to create partnerships so that when they decide to take money away, those partnerships can fill those gaps for me. That's why I still have arts and music in my building because I've I've had other outside agencies provide the, the music and the arts to my school. So what we have to understand is that and there's a lot of systemic um, things that have been around forever that whenever a school shows success, for some reason, is taken away. So we got to just keep you know figuring out how to create partnerships that work, get resources outside of the school system, outside of the state, to provide those resources we need for our children. So when the cuts come, you're not cut as hard. You can sustain the hits and continue to be successful. Wow. First of all, I didn't even know that, right? Like you, what you just mentioned, I think is really key and it's important for us to understand because so many people have questions about funding, right? And what's going on with funding. And when you are lacking the resources and your school is labeled as a failing school, because you may not have those resources, all of a sudden something changes, right? And you start to improve it because the state is providing additional funds. But then all of a sudden, as you as you meet the um, the requirements for the state and you become a, a, a school that's doing really well, now your resources are no longer there, right? And so, what's happening there? Um, so, I think it's important for people to understand that that is a, that is a big problem, um, and I don't think it's spoken of spoken about. Um, as much, at least on a public level. So I think it's important for people to understand this. The other thing you mentioned, Torres, is the importance of the art program and, and what you did to keep those art programs in your school. I also know you did a really amazing uh, TED Talk around the, the role of art in, in your life. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? And I know you're a huge, huge supporter of, of hip-hop and you grew up in hip-hop and like you know you're doing amazing work around hip-hop in the Bronx community so how does this how did this all come about for you yeah so for me I realize and I understand that for a lot of our children the ticket to college is not going to just be academics you know sports and arts are a ticket for college access 
And if certain communities control all the sports and arts programs, of course, they're going to control those scholarships. So we have to understand that, you know, there are people who go to college for free. And it's not about their income. It's based on their access to sports and arts. Right. So the community where I live right now, my, my, my own children have loads of access to sports and arts. Right. The children that they will compete against, the children that my that that they come from the communities like where my school is located, they don't have access to sports and arts, right? So when they go and compete for these scholarships, who's gonna get those scholarships? And there's loads of money for sports and arts programs. We also have to understand, right? We can give three thousand seats to specialized schools, but if we don't have feeder schools who are feeding these children with these talents to feed those schools, those seats are never going to be filled. So it's very important for, we, for us to understand that when the sports and arts were taken away from the schools many years back, they may have been intentional, you know, so that certain communities can control the sports and arts access, right? So it's not, you know, when, I, I get frustrated with sports because when I look at certain sports and I see the athletes out there, I'm not mad at them. I'm mad at the fact that our children could be there as well, but because they don't have access to these resources, they can't be there. Hockey is controlled completely by white athletes. Let's be real. How many black and Puerto Ricans you see playing hockey? But then, right? Let's look at our communities. Are there any hockey rinks in our communities? Are there any ice skating rinks in our communities? Absolutely not. So how are we going to be competitive for those scholarships in college uh, for hockey programs? Come on. You know, tennis is the same thing. Golf is the same thing, you know. But then there's loads of money that is being thrown to scholarships for these programs, and our children don't have access to it, not because they're not talented. It's just because they don't have access. It's the same idea with the arts. You know, if we don't have high-quality music programs in our schools, music uh, bands, how are our children going to be uh, competing for a college band? You know, just because they play a flute once a week, it's not going to gain them access to a college band. Now, a kid who goes into college uh, to play music, right, doesn't have to pay any college a tuition because they wind up in a, in a music scholarship and one of our children who's starving and hungry just because he played the flute for three years does not qualify for that. You understand? So we have to be more strategic. We have to advocate more for not access to sports and music, access to high quality sports and music programs that will prepare the children to be competitive for scholarships and access to um, high quality high school programs. That's what we need to be fighting for. I'm tired of having my children do coloring books. No, now I want them to create Picassos. That's real. Uh, so you mentioned something else. You mentioned uh, specialized high schools. And just, so obviously there's a debate right now about whether or not they should get rid of the specialized high school test. And I've heard arguments on both sides. I kind of want to get your, your take on that. What do you think about the test? This is my own opinion. I applaud the chancellor for what he's doing. I applaud the chancellor for he, what he's doing because he's he's beyond brave. He's doing things that should have been happening for years. And he's shouting out and he's exposing the system for what it was. And I applaud him for that. But now we have to take it to the next level. 
Now we have to better prepare our children in the early grades so that they can fill those seats. And that's what I believe. You know, I, I, I honestly feel that, you know, they test to me, you know, I wasn't a great test taker growing up. I'll be honest with you. When I got to college is when I became a great test taker. But growing through high school, elementary school, I was not a great test taker. I'm not a believer in test taking. I'm a believer in performance. Because a lot of what I do now in life has nothing to do with testing. It has to do with the, my ability to do my job, my ability to build relationships, my ability to speak, and my ability to um, uh, manage systems. That's what it's based on. It's not based on exams. So, you know, um, I believe that a portfolio system, I believe what the chancellor is trying to do is great because you have a lot of great children who do great work that are not being um, tapped into because of a test. When I, the reason why my guidance counselor didn't feel that I would be successful in college wasn't because she, she, she didn't know I was an artist. I grew up around the tax crew. And I, and I had amazing art skills, but if she would have tapped into that, she would have realized I could have been a major, uh, amazing art teacher, but she never took the time to know me as a person. She just looked at exams and, and made assumptions of who I am based on tests, tests that, you know, quite often were biased back then. Are. So we, yeah, we, we have to be mindful of that. You know, um, for me, I, I'm a person that believes on, on people's ability to perform, not not the, their ability to take a test. You know, I, I have people who've gone to the best colleges, come to my school as teachers and don't survive a day in the school. I have people who've gone to the community um, colleges and they're still teaching. In fact, they're becoming master teachers in my building. So if it's about test taking, if it's about uh, that, that to me is not... Um, that, that to me is not the important thing. The important thing for me is the ability uh, for people to perform. Mm. That's real. That's real. Absolutely, man. And and so, again, given all your work, right, uh, we spoke a lot about the arts, and you're doing something that's really amazing right now that I think is going to completely change the game, probably nationwide, right? Um, you love hip-hop, and um, I think we all do here, right? I'm a huge fan of hip-hop. Kevin is a huge fan of hip-hop. Um, but Torres, can you talk to us a little bit about what you're about to do with your school in relation to hip hop and what your vision is for this? I don't want to say what it is. I want, I want you to talk about this so that everyone can be aware of what you're about to do. Yeah, I want, I want to align, um, the culture of our community with the resources and the education of our children in the school. And I'm going to, I'll be honest, I'm going to give you a quick example of how, how powerful it is. So um, when the coronavirus first um, came out, right, um, I was trying to figure out a way to teach my students how to keep their hands clean and how to cough in their elbows, right? So I, I met with a group of my students. I said, you know, we got to, you know, my student government, I said, we got to do something because I noticed that the children tend to cough out loud. They don't, they don't cover their mouths. You know, they're sneezing all over the place. We're going to, more and more children are going to get sick. What can we do? And one of the children said, Mr. Torres, um, when you cough in your elbow, it looks like a dab. I said, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, it looks like you're dabbing when you cough in your elbow. I said, oh, beautiful. You know what? The first assembly program I had with my students, I was teaching them, when you cough, you dab. Cough, you dab. And all of a sudden, it turned the, the culture of my school around where children in the hallways when they were sneezing and coughing were dabbing to cover their mouth. But if I didn't have that connection to them, right, 
And if I didn't understand um, the culture of my community, that would have never come about. You understand? But they understood what we were doing. You understand? So it's little things like that that make me understand that we have to connect everything in the school to the culture of the children. So I partnered with Windows of Hip Hop, and we're about to, um, we were about to open up a music studio in the basement of the school, but not to just play music. We want to teach them everything about the industry. We want them to learn about marketing, recording, distribution, um, engineering. They were going to be doing coding, everything that's necessary in order to be successful in this job. And you know what? Every every now and then we might get a couple of children who could spit some bars. I'm, you know, I'm not mad at them. We'll, we'll utilize that talent. But the reality is we wanted to tap into everything um, that the children bring to the table and, and expose them to, to the music that they listen to uh, in a different way. So I, I partnered with Grandmaster Cass, Grandmaster Melly Mel, and Windows of Hip Hop. Then we're going to take it to a whole nother level. There's a lot of work around word work that's going to happen in the school. We know that a lot of the early literacy is dependent on children understanding how words work. So we're going to uh, have poetry slams in the hallways. We're going to do um, spoken word all over the place. We're going to have children writing rhymes, speaking all over the place. Every child is going to get a dictionary because it's not about you just spitting words. You have to understand how the words work with each other and the meanings of these words. So... We're, we're looking to take education to a whole nother level by infusing the culture of the community. And it's not only about hip hop, because if you if you um, work in a Bengali community, then you can make your resources based on the Bengali community. You understand? So it's just really just matching the cultures that exist in the community with the resources and, and, and the practices within the school. I love it. Um... Please, please keep us up to date with all of that stuff. Uh, you, you mentioned something that is really important, right? Um, and it's the fact that we should, any anyone who does any work with young people, families, clients, et cetera, we should be aware of what's going on in the community and what the culture is in, within that community, right? Not just in terms of ethnicity and race, but what are people listening to? What do people like to eat, you know, et cetera. And I'm a social worker by trade. And one of the things that I've always stuck to is the concept of understanding cultural uh, competence, having cultural competency, right? Now, understanding your culture and understanding identity because many of those things are so important. And I think how we get these inequities and these big disconnects is because we're not doing the work to understand the people that we're working with. Um, and so I love that you're saying that, right? It's it's understanding who's in your community and then bringing that into your school uh, and teaching with the culture of the community and thinking of different ways to get creative, but also uh, promoting student voice. Right, I think what you just said was so dope. And again, a lot of times we don't give students these opportunities. But you just said um, you you spoke to your student government. You said, "Hey, I need to figure this out. Like, how do we start to change the culture around? Um, you know, our our students sneezing and coughing, etc." And you can and, and the students mentioned daddy. Right, that's huge. And it's such a small thing that has such big impact that we all, all don't always get a chance to really um, think about. So. Um, huge shout out to you for the work that you're doing. And again, but for those who are listening, um, please take all this in, right? Please, please take all this in because um, we are not going to be able to do any great work without the young people that we serve. Yep. And, and just, you know, one thing that and everybody's sitting home right now, right? You don't have a lot to do right now. You're sitting home, you know, um, schools are closed. 
you know, as, as leaders and as educators, let's do something that I call community matching. Let's look at all the resources you have in the school and let's match it with the needs of your community. And where there's gaps, let's fill those gaps. Let's start to do things. Um, if, if your community doesn't speak Spanish no more, then why do you have bilingual programs that, that service the Spanish community? If your community is African, then start to match uh, the, the, the resources to the African community. Start to really look at the needs of your community and the resources you're pumping out. And, and let's start, you know, truly serving our communities. That's real. That's real. Uh, yo, Brother Torres, thank you so much. Thank you so, so very much. Before we let you, before we let you go, um, what we're going to be doing with every guest that we have on here. So this is a Bronx podcast, right? So we want to have a little bit of fun with it. Not all of our listeners might be from the Bronx. So we had a couple questions for you that are very Bronx centric. Uh, so tell us what is your favorite restaurant in the Bronx? If you bring in somebody who's not from here, where are you taking them out to eat in that, in the BX? Well, well for me, you know, um, it's always been Tosca's, Tosca's and Giovanni's. It's the same old owners. Um, I love Italian food. Um, I, I, I really, you know, enjoy the food in Tosca's and Giovanni's. Um, and then for Spanish food, you know, I, I, I eat a lot, so I can't have just one. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? For Spanish food, you know, it's Sabrosuda, um, Sabrosuda on Castle Hill. You know, um, you know, it's there's a lot of a lot of great restaurants. I mean, it's very hard to choose one. Um, but if I had to choose in the Bronx, those are those are the main ones. And you know, City Island rocks too. Yeah. Shout out to City the Island. Island. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so non food related. Uh somebody comes from the Bronx, you're taking them around. What are some of the spots you're taking them to? Or what's your favorite spot you bring them to? Well, I'm taking them to the Freeman House. Um, right in front of the Freeman House, you got um, Grandmaster Kaz, Melly Mel's mural. Um, you have great, great graffiti artists who display their work. Um, like my boy Andre Trinia, he's in there. These are all my windows of hip hop brothers and sisters. Um, and I'm taking them, you know, places that uh, normally they would not be able to go to, like Eldon Watson. Okay. Why, why shouldn't they see where, where the real people live? You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, I always got to hit Yankee Stadium too. And then maybe take them on a ferry ride from Soundview, you know. Um, you know, there's a lot of the thing about the Bronx now. There's so much to do in the Bronx. We are we are not we are not burning anymore. We are on fire. I love that. Wow. I love that. I love that. Uh, and last but not least, and I think you kind of touched on it a little bit. But what is one misconception uh, that you want to shut down that people have about the Bronx? Um, a major misconception about the Bronx is that um, that people walk around beating each other up. You know, the, the crime is all that we have. You know, that our, that our women are not respectful. Um, that, you know, that our schools are not great. Our communities are not great. You know, we have to stop saying that because you have some of the greatest schools in the Bronx. You have some of the greatest leaders in the Bronx. You have some most exciting and respectable women in the Bronx. You have some of the greatest elected officials in the Bronx. There's a lot of great things in the Bronx and people have to stop um, talking about the Bronx as if it's still burning and, and that the buildings are still abandoned. We're not there no more. Believe me, there's a lot of investment in this in this borough right now. Um, uh, I want to give a shout out to Ruben Diaz Jr. and all the elected officials of the Bronx because they've taken the Bronx to a whole higher level. 
you know? Absolutely. Um, thank you for all of that. Uh, you know, and, and we really appreciate, appreciate you being, um, on the show with us and being our first interviewee, right? Uh, this was exciting. It's amazing. Um, please continue to, to do all the great work that you're doing. Um, anytime that I called you, anytime I needed something, you were right there. You always answered the call. So I truly, truly appreciate you um, for always, always coming through. There are no questions asked. You're always like, I'm there. I got this. Um, so thank you for that. And then um, how can people stay in contact with you? Yeah, I'd say the best way to stay in contact with me is through Instagram. Um, Torres ASCD. I live on social media. Um, if you see anything that I'm doing, again, Torres ASCD. CD. Um, you see anything that I'm doing that you want to be part of or do you need support? If you need resources, let me know. Um, that's the best way to reach me. I'm also on Twitter, um, on Real Talk, uh, Torres Real Talk. Um, I don't give out my Facebook because that's always full. And that's basically the two ways to reach me. Um, and, and if not, just add Jason. Jason knows where I'm at. I got you. I but but before before I go, I just want to say I appreciate the two of you because you're taking the time to um, you know give the people the real information that they need to be hearing. You know, quite often you get it from people who don't know the community, who are not who are not connected to the community. But you two are connected to the community, and you're doing great stuff. So keep up the hard work. Anything I could do to support, I'm there. Brother Torres, we want to thank you. This has been my longest time in the toilet. Sharing your insights, your wisdom, and just giving us something to think about. So we truly appreciate it. You are our first interview, and you were a really dope interview. So thank you, brother. Thank you. So, so, so with that, um, this is episode three. Uh, thank you, thank you all for listening in. Thank you all for being here. Um, and oh yes, yes, yes. Social media. Please, uh, you can, if you have any questions, you want to reach out to us, you can reach us on email at info at livefromthebronx.com. Again, that is info at livefromthebronx.com. On Instagram, you can follow us at live, uh, at live from the Bronx. Um, on Twitter, you can follow us at live from the BX. Um, and then, um, I think that's it. Am I missing anything? I think we are good. That is episode three. We trying. Yeah, there's still toilet paper out there.